Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Saturday, March 4th episode. That's episode, I think it's 185 of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. Definitely worth your while. Bunch of great, great podcasts um, by my brothers and sisters over there. Um, Andrew Rappaport has a number of them over there. All of them are worth your while. Uh, Gene Clyatt has Squirrel Chatter over there. Definitely the, the squirrel. Um, as we call him in the Christian community, definitely worth your while listening to uh, Chris Honholz and Rich Story doing Voice of Reason Radio is wonderful. Chris Huff with Matter of Theology is definitely worth your while. Um, Eki and uh, Eki Tepsapornchai and Nathaniel Jolly um, doing uh, Truth Be Known is another wonderful one. Um, and believe me, there are many, many more that I haven't named. Um, those are the ones that are top on my play or top on my playlist just cause I came to them before I even came to the Christian podcast community and was already listening to them. But there are so many more, um, definitely worth your while to go out there and find listening. Believe me, you will run out of time to listen to all the ones you want to listen to, but it's worth your while. And it definitely would be edifying for you to go out and spend your time listening to those great brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, so I would continue to encourage you to do so. Um, want to continue to point you at the final link in the show notes. Um, it is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Give, Sin, Go campaign. We are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage so that we can shift gears and commence establishment of a Christian classic education-based school to provide an alternative here in our community for um, parents, grandparents trying to raise their children and give them kind of an alternative, um, a place where they can feel safe. I mean, you know, we've seen stuff going on in the public schools and I'm not trying to bash the public schools, but things being enforced and being pushed on our children that, that don't meet with our values. And so, you know, this, this will hopefully give them an alternative that that's where we're striving for. That's what we're praying for. So go ahead and click on the link. You can go read the description. It's a much better description than I just gave you of what we're doing. And then we would ask three things of you. We would ask you to pray for us. We would ask for you to prayerfully consider giving to us. And we would ask for you to pass the link along so others can do the same. Um, and I got to let you know, sorry, this is a little bit late coming out this morning. Um, we were, uh, we went out and, um, not out, out. We went out with my son and daughter-in-law and went to see a school production that was put on. Um, it was, it was my, my son's um, drama instructor. He, he came out of retirement to help a new high school out here develop, develop a drama, help set up a drama program. And so it was, um, a production by them. And so we went out to kind of support them and, um, it was wonderful. It was wonderful getting to see those young people, you know, be creative and productive. And, and, you know, it brought a flashback. While I was never in drama, I was always in band. And so I was supporting, musically supporting these productions. Um, cause we tended to musically 
assist. We didn't use canned music, though that's easier nowadays. Um, and so, you know, of course, it's been 38 years since my last high school production that I was part of. But my son, it was, you know, and he's 12 years out. But looking back and looking at them and going, wow, they're kids and wow, we're old. And But it was just wonderful. It was wonderful to get to see him, to get to, get to see some of the alumni that I knew from my son's day in and, and to get to enjoy and spend that time. And I know you really don't care about all this, but just relating. So that's what I was taking up with last night. We got in pretty late from that. So just was not in the right place to try to record last night. So that's why this one's coming out this morning. Um, but um, again, I, I, I hope you get to spend time with me today. Um, and I pray that you do. Um, so you would be edified by the word of God, not by me, but by the word of God um, and by these wonderful Puritans that I read from each day. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to continue on in our uh, scripture for the, our scripture reading for this read the Bible in a year plan, which again, the link is there. So you can, um, in the show notes near the bottom, so you can pull this plan up and see what we're doing and know, and know what we're doing next. Or if you want to read ahead, you can read ahead or any of those things. Of course you can read ahead anyways, without the plan, but it's there for you. So let's go ahead and open up this morning with the seventh day morning, uh, prayer, as we usually do on Saturday mornings, with God's good pleasure. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, thy will is supreme in heaven and earth, and all beings are creatures of thy power. Thou art the father of our spirits. Thy inspiration gives us understanding. Thy providence governs our lives. But, O God, we are sinners in thy sight. Thou hast judged us so, and if we deny it, we make thee a liar. Yet in Christ thou art reconciled to thy rebellious subjects. Give us the ear of faith to hear him the eye of faith to see him, the hand of faith to receive him, the appetite of faith to feed upon him, that we might find in him light, riches, honor, eternal life. Thou art the inviting one, may we hearken to thee. The almighty instructor, teach us to live to thee. The light dweller, inaccessible to man and angels, hiding thyself behind the elements of creation, but known to us in Jesus. Possess our minds with the grandeur of thy perfections. Thy love to us in Jesus is firm and changeless. Nothing can separate us from it, and in the enjoyment of it, nothing can make us miserable. Preserve us from hypocrisy and formality in religion. Enable us to remember that thou art what thou art and what we are, to recall thy holiness and our unworthiness. Help us to approach thee clothed with humility, for vanity, forwardness, insensibility, disorderly affection, backwardness to duty, proneness to evil are in our hearts. Let us never forget thy patience, wisdom, power, faithfulness, care, and never cease to respond to thy invitations. Amen. All right, now our morning devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. This is the one for March 4th, a morning one. The text is from 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for thee. If none of God's saints were poor and tired, we should not know half so well the consolation of divine grace. When we find the wanderer who, is not, has, who has not where to lay his head, who yet can say, Still will I trust in the Lord. When we see the pauper starving on bread and water, who still glories in Jesus, when we see the bereaved widow overwhelmed in affliction and yet having faith in Christ, oh, what honor it reflects on the gospel. God's grace is illustrated and magnified in the poverty and trials of believers. Saints bear up under every under every discouragement, believing that all things work together for their good, and that out of apparent evils a real blessing shall ultimately spring, that their good that their God will either work a deliverance for them speedily, or most assuredly support them in the trouble as long as he is pleased to keep them in it. 
This patience of the saints proves the power of, a, of divine grace. There is a lighthouse out at sea. It is a calm night. I cannot tell whether the edifice is firm. The tempest must rage about it, and then I shall know whether it will stand. So with the Spirit's work, if it were not on many occasions surrounded with tempestuous waters, we should not know that, that it was true and strong. If the winds did not blow upon it, we should not know how firm and secure it was. The master works of God are those men who stand in the midst of difficulties, steadfast, unmovable, calm mid the bewildering cry, confident of victory. He who would glorify his God must set his account upon meeting with many trials. No man can be illustrious before the Lord unless his conflicts be many. If then yours be a much tried path, rejoice in it, because you will, be, will the better show forth the all-sufficient grace of God. As for his failing you, never dream of it. Hate the thought. The God who has been sufficient until now should be trusted to the end. Amen. Ah, great one from Spurgeon this morning. All right, as they all are, honestly. Um, wow, that didn't pop up, right? Huh, well, that loaded wrong. I'll have to fix that link. Okay, so sorry about that. That was our... Uh, scripture readings and I had clicked on the link to open up the page and I had set the link wrong. Okay. Anyways, not that you care. Um, so we're going to get into our reading this morning. Uh, we're going to start in numbers two. We're going to read all of numbers two and number three, and then into Mark and Psalms and Proverbs, like we've been doing for the last number of days. So numbers two, hear the word of the Lord. Now Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, the sons of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies and the leader of the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab and his army, even their numbered men, 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, and the leader of the sons of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, and his army, even his numbered men, 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, and the leader of the sons of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, and his army, even his numbered men, 57,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400, by their armies, they shall set out first. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Reuben, Eliezer, Eliezer the son of Shedur, and his army, even his numbered men, 46,500. And those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, and the leader of the sons of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, and his army, even their numbered men, 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, and the leader of the sons of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, and his army, even their numbered men, 45,650. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Reuben, 151,450, by their armies, and they shall set out second. <clears throat> Sorry. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. Just as they camp, so they shall set out, every man in his place, by their standards. And on the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim, by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Ephraim, Elishama the son of Amihud, and his army, even their numbered men, 40,500. Next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the sons of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, and his army, even their numbered men, 32,200. 
Then the tribe of Benjamin and the leader of the sons of Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni, <clears throat> and his army, even their numbered men, 35,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Ephraim, 108,100 by their armies, and they shall set out third. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan, by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, and his army, even their numbered men, 62,700. Those who, excuse me, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, and the leader of the sons of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okran, and his army, even their numbered men, 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, and the leader of the sons of Naphtali, Ahira, and the son of Enan, and his army, even their numbered men, 53,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Dan was 157,600. They shall set out last by their standards. These are the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their fathers' households. The total of the numbered men of the camps by their armies, 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered among the sons of Israel, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out, every one by his family, according to his father's household. Numbers 3. <clears throat> Sorry. All right, Numbers 3. Now these are the generations of Aaron and Moses, at the time when Yahweh spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These then are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu. Sorry, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to minister as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before Yahweh when they offered strange fire before Yahweh in the wilderness of Sinai. And they had no children, so Eleazar and Ithamar ministered as priests in the lifetime of their father Aaron. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and have them stand before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. And they shall keep his responsibility, and the responsibility for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, to perform the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, along with the responsibility of the sons of Israel to perform the service of the tabernacle. You, you shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So they shall appoint Aaron and his sons, that they may keep their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Now, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel, instead of every firstborn the first offspring of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, from man to beast. They shall be mine, I am Yahweh. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the sons of Levi by their father's households. By their families, every male from a month old and upward you shall number. So Moses numbered them according to the word of Yahweh, just as he had been commanded. These then are the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon and Kohath and Merari. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their families, Libni and Shemi, and the sons of Kohath by their families, Amram and Ishar, Hebron and Uziel, and the sons of Merari by their families, Mali and Mushi. These are the families of the Levites according to their father's household. Of Gershon was the family of the Libnites and the family of the Shemiites. These were the families of the Gershonites. 
their numbered men in the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, even their numbered men, were 7,500. The families of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle westward. And the leader of the father's households of the Gershonites was Eliasaph, the son of Lael. Lael. Now the responsibility of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle and the tent, its covering and the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting, and the hangings of the court and the screen for the doorway of the court, which is around the tabernacle, and the altar and its cords, according to all the service concerning them. Of Kohath was the family of the Amramites, and the family of the Isherites, and the family of the Hebronites, and the family of the Uzielites. These were the families of the Kohathites. In the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, there were 8,600, keeping the responsibility of the sanctuary. The families of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the southward side of the tabernacle. And the leader of the father's households of the Kohathites' families was Elizaphan, the son of Uziel. <clears throat> now their responsibility involving the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, and the utensils of the sanctuary with which they minister, and the screen, and all the service concerning them. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, was the chief of the leaders of Levi, and had the oversight of those who keep the responsibility of the sanctuary. Of Merari was the family of the Maalites, Maalites, and the family of the Mushites. These were the families of Merari. And their numbered men, and the numbering of every male from a month old and upward, were sixty-two hundred. And the leader of the father's households of the families of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. Abihel. They were to camp on the northward side of the tabernacle. Now the appointed responsibility of the sons of Merari involved the boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its bases, all its equipment, and the service concerning them, and the pillars around the court with their bases and their pegs, <coughs> pegs and their cords. Now those who were to camp before the tabernacle eastward, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, are Moses and Aaron and his sons, keeping the responsibility of the sanctuary for the responsibility of the sons of Israel. But the outsider coming near was to be put to death. All the numbered men of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of Yahweh by their families, every male from a month old and upward, were twenty-two thousand. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Number every firstborn male of the sons of Israel from a month old and upward, and make a list of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me. I am Yahweh instead of all the I, I am Yahweh instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the sons of Israel. So Moses numbered all the firstborn among the sons of Israel, just as Yahweh had commanded him, and all the firstborn males by the number of names from a month old and upward, for their numbered men were 22,273. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the sons of Israel, and the cattle of the Levites, and the Levites shall be mine. I am Yahweh. For the redemption price of the 273 of the firstborn of the sons of Israel, who are in excess beyond the Levites, you shall take five shekels apiece per head. You shall take them in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is twenty giras, and give the money, <clears throat> the redemption price of those who are in excess among them, to Aaron and to his sons. So Moses took the money of the redemption price from those who were in excess, beyond those redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the sons of Israel, he took the money in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, 1,365. Then Moses gave the money of the redemption price to Aaron and to his sons at the command of Yahweh just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. All right. Mark 11. 
We're starting in verse 27 through the end of the chapter and then into Mark 12. So Mark 11, verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer me, and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd, for everyone was regarding John to have been a real prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, Mark 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine growers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the crowd, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a a statement. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up a seed for his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first married a wife and died leaving no seed. And the second one married her and died, leaving behind no seed. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no seed. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. 
But regarding the fact that the dead are raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. And when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would dare to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And in his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who want to walk around in long, ro long robes and want respectful greetings in the marketplace and best seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. <clears throat> and he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the crowd was putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came... Actually, I was supposed to stop a while back. Well, sorry, we got a lot farther. So I'm going to stop. This is the widow's offering and we'll come back to this. Um, so I read further in Mark 12 than I was supposed to. So anyways, Psalm 47. <clears throat> Just got caught up in the word of God. So didn't want to let it go. All right, Psalm 47. For the choir director of the sons of Korah, a psalm. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Make a loud shout to God with the sound of a shout of joy. For Yahweh Most High is fearsome, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us, and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves, Selah. God has ascended with a loud shout, Yahweh with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The nobles of the peoples have assembled themselves with the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. All right, and finally, Proverbs 10, verses 24 and 25. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. All right. Well, that is our reading plus some this morning. Got a little carried away in Mark. Um, it's hard not to, though, in the gospel. <laughs> so, actually, it's hard not to in any of them. You keep wanting to go on and on. Or at least I do. Maybe I'm weird that way. But anyways, 
Thank you so much for spending this time with me this morning in this morning segment. Um, I'm very, very blessed by you spending this time with me. Um, and I'm very, very blessed by just spending time with the Lord and spending this time reading from the Puritans and spending the time in, in uh, the scriptures. And I hope you are too. I pray that you are too, um, because we need more and more of it. Um, uh, we Christians, actually, we this world, but particularly even in within the Christian church, um, we've become so biblically illiterate, and it's so important that we spend this time. Um, so I would encourage you beyond just listening to this podcast, if that's what you're doing, that that even in place of doing this, if, if you need to spend the time otherwise, spend it in reading the Word of God. You need to spend time in the Word of God and in prayer. We all have to. I, I strive to do so much more of that outside of this, and I still feel like I'm lacking. Um, and I am, I mean, we all are, I don't know of anybody that will ever come before, before the seat of glory and not, not in some sense think I didn't spend enough time in the word and in prayer. So I would definitely encourage you to do so. Well, thank again, thank you for spending this time with me. Um, Again, I hope it was beneficial to you. I hope you have a great Saturday. I hope you're prepping for worship services either tonight or tomorrow morning. Um, Spend that time worshiping God with the saints. And uh, I would continue to implore you. Wow, went blank there for a minute. I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And God willing, I will see you with the evening segment. Um, Let's go ahead and close out in prayer. The prayer we're going to close out with from Valley of Vision is called Freedom. Let's pray. O Holy Father, thou hast freely given thy Son. O Divine Son, thou hast freely paid my debt. O Eternal Spirit, thou hast freely bid me come. O Triune God, thou dost freely grace me with salvation. Prayers and tears could not suffice to pardon my sins, nor anything less than atoning blood. But my believing is my receiving. For a thankful acceptance is no paying of the debt. What didst thou see in me, that I, a poor diseased, despised sinner, should be clothed in thy bright glory, that a creeping worm should be advanced to this high state, that one lately groaning, weeping, dying, should be as full of joy as my heart can hold, that a being of dust and darkness should be taken like Mordecai from captivity and set next to the king, should be lifted like Daniel from a den and be made ruler of princes and provinces, who can fathom measurable love as far as the rational soul exceeds the senses. So does the spirit exceed the rational in its knowledge of thee. Thou hast given me understanding to compass the earth, measure the sun, moon, stars, universe, but above all to know thee, the only true God. I marvel that the finite can know the infinite, here a little, afterward, and full orb truth. Now I know but a small portion of what I shall know, here in part, there in perfection, here a glimpse, there a glory. To enjoy thee is life eternal, and to enjoy is to know. Keep me in the freedom of experience, thy salvation continually. Amen. All right, well, like I said, hope you have a wonderful day, and God willing, I will see you this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. 
Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Saturday, March 4th episode. That's episode 185 of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian podcast community. You can reach us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. I would encourage you to go over there. Great, great listening. Lots and lots of podcasts over there. Believe me, you'll run out of time to listen to all the ones you want to listen to. So definitely worth your while. It would not be a waste at all. <clears throat> so this evening we're going to be continuing on our on in our reading of thomas watson's the godly man's picture and as i've said multiple times yes this is called the godly man's picture but these are the characteristics of a godly person this is what the godly person should look like this is what their picture should be so it's definitely for all of you and for me that's for all of us i should say that would be better put it better worded all right, well, let's go ahead and open up this morning uh, like we usually do on, or this evening, I should say, like we usually do on Saturday evenings with the Lord's Day Eve prayer. Let's pray. God of the passing hour, another week has gone and I have been preserved in my going out and my coming in. Thine has been the vigilance that has turned threatened evils aside. Thine the supplies that have nourished me. Thine the comforts that have indulged me. Thine the relations and friends that have delighted me. Thine the means of grace which have edified me. Thine the book which amidst all my enjoyments has told me that this is not my rest, that in all successes one thing alone is needful, to love my Savior. Nothing can equal the number of thy mercies, but my imperfections and sins. These, O God, I will neither conceal nor palliate, but confess with a broken heart. In what condition would secret views of my life leave me, were it not for the assurance that with thee there is plenteous redemption, that thou art, thou art a forgiving God, that thou mayest be feared. While I hope for pardon through the blood of the cross, I pray to be clothed with humility, to be quickened in thy way, to be more devoted to thee, to keep the end of my life in view, to be cured of the folly of delay and indecision, to know how frail I am, to number my days and apply my heart unto wisdom. Amen. <clears throat> All right, and our evening devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for March 4th. The text is Psalms 36 is from Psalm 36, 8. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. Sheba's queen was amazed at the sumptuousness of Solomon's table. She lost all heart when she saw the provisions of a single day. And she marveled equally at the company of servants who were feasted at the royal board. But what is this to the hospitalities of the God of grace? Ten thousand thousand of his people are daily fed, hungry, and thirsty. They bring large appetites with them to the banquet, but not one of them returns unsatisfied. There is enough for each, enough for all, enough for evermore. Though the host that, f that feed at Jehovah's table is countless as the stars of heaven, yet each one has his portion of meat. Think how much grace one saint requires, so much that nothing but the infinite could supply him for one day. And yet the Lord spreads his table, not for one, but many saints. Not for one day, but for many years. Not for many years only, but for generation after generation. Observe the full feasting spoken of in the text. The guests at Mercy's banquet are, the guests at Mercy's banquet are satisfied, nay, more abundantly satisfied. And that not with ordinary fare, but with fatness, the peculiar fatness of God's own house. And such feasting is guaranteed by a faithful promise to all. Those children of men who put their trust under the shadow of Jehovah's wings. I once, Jehovah's wings, I once thought if I might put 
but get the broken meat at God's back door of grace. I should be satisfied, like the woman who said, the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. But no child of God is ever served with scraps and leavings like Mephibosheth. They all eat from the king's own table in matters of grace. We, I'm sorry, in matters of grace, we all have Benjamin's mess. We all have ten times more than we could have expected. And though our necessities are great, yet are we often amazed at the marvelous plenty of grace which God gives us experimentally to enjoy. All right. So, like I said, we're going to continue on in our reading of Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture. And like I've said before, we're in the overall section four, which is the characteristics of the godly man, what that godly man should look like. And uh, this one is section 19. This is the 19th attribute of that godly man, that godly person. So, section 19. A godly man does not indulge in any sin. Though sin lives in him, yet he does not live in sin. Every man, I'm sorry, every man that has wine in him is not in wine. A godly man may step into sin through infirmity, but he does not keep to that road. He prays, see if there is any way of wickedness in me, Psalm 139, 24. Question, what does it mean to indulge sin? Answer one, it means to give the breast, yeah, it means to give the breast to it and feed it. As a found parent humors his child and lets him have whatever he wants, so indulging sin is to humor it. Answer two, to indulge sin is to commit sin with delight. The ungodly took pleasure in unrighteousness. In this sense, a godly man does not indulge sin. Though sin is in him, he is troubled at it and would gladly get rid of it. There is as much difference between sin in the wicked and sin in the godly as there is between poison being in a serpent and poison being in a man. Poison in a serpent, serpent is in its natural place and is delightful to it, but poison in a man's body is harmful, and he uses antidotes to expel it. So sin in a wicked man is delightful to him, being in its natural place. But sin in a child sorry, but sin in a child of God is burdensome, and he uses all means to expel it. This cuts off from the sin. The will is against it. A godly man enters his protest against sin. What I do, I hate, Romans 7.15. A child of God, while he commits sin, hates the sin he commits. In particular, there are four kinds of sin which a godly man will not allow himself. S number one, secret sins. Some are more modest than to commit open gross sins. That would be a stain on their reputation. But they will sit brooding upon sin in a corner. In a corner. Saul secretly practiced mischief, 1 Samuel 23.9. All will not sin on a balcony, but perhaps they will sin behind the curtain. Rachel did not carry her father's images like a saddlecloth to be exposed to public view. Rather, she put them under her and sat on them. Genesis 31:34. Many carry their sins secretly, like a candle in a dark lantern. But a godly man dares not sin secretly. He knows that God sees in secret, for he knows the secrets of every heart. Psalm 44:21. As God cannot be deceived by our subtlety, so he cannot be excluded by our secrecy. Number two, a godly man knows that secret sins are in some sense worse than others. They reveal more guile and atheism. The curtain sinner makes himself believe that God does not see. Son of man, have you seen what the leaders of Israel are doing with their idols in dark rooms? For they say the Lord does not see us, Ezekiel 8.12. 
Those who have bad eyes think the sun is dim. How it provokes God that men's atheism should contradict his omniscience. He who formed the eye, shall he not see? Psalm 94, 9. Number three, a godly man knows that secret sins will not escape God's justice. A judge on the bench can punish no offense except what is proved by witnesses. He cannot punish the treason of the heart. But the sins of the heart are as visible to God as if they were written on the forehead. Just as God will reward secret duties, so he will revenge secret, secret sins. Okay, Number two, gainful sins. Gain is the golden bait with which Satan fishes for souls. This was the last temptation he used with Christ. All this I will give you. Matthew 4.9 But Christ saw the hook under the bait. Many who have escaped gross sins are still caught in a golden net. To gain the world they would use in direct routes. A godly man dares not travel for riches through the devil's highway. Those are sad gains that make a man lose his peace of conscience and at last heaven. The one who gets an estate by injustice stuffs his pillows with thorns, and his head will lie very uneasy when he comes to die. What profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Matthew 16, 26. Number, number three, beloved besetting sins. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Hebrews 12, 1. There is usually one sin that is the favorite, the sin which the heart is most fond of. A beloved sin lies in a man's bosom as the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned on his bosom. John 13.23 A godly man will not indulge a darling sin. I kept myself with my, from my iniquity. Psalm 18.23 The sin of my constitution, to which the bias of my heart more naturally inclines. Fight neither with small nor great, but only with the king. 1 Kings 22.31 A godly man fights this king's sin. The oracle of Apollo answered the people of Syrah that if they would live in peace among themselves, then they must make continual war with those strangers who were on their borders. If we would have peace in our souls, we must maintain a war against our favorite sin and never quit till it is subdued. Question. How will we know the beloved sin? Answer 1. The sin which a man does not love to have love to have reproved is the darling sin. Herod could not endure having his incest spoken against. If the prophet meddles with that sin, it will cost him his head. Do not touch my Herodias. Men can be content to have other sins reproved, but if the minister puts his finger on the sore and touches his sin, their hearts begin to burn in malice against him. A practical sign that it is their Herodias. Answer number two. The sin to which the thoughts run most is the darling sin. Whichever way the thoughts go, the heart goes. Someone that is in love with a person cannot keep his thoughts off the object of his affections. Examine which sin runs most in your mind, which sin is first in your thoughts, which one greets you in the morning. That is your predominant sin. Answer 3. The sin which has most power over us and most easily leads us captive is the one beloved by the soul. There are some sins which a man can better resist. If they come to be entertained, he can more easily put them off. But there is one sin that if it comes to be a suitor, he cannot deny, but is overcome by it. This is the bosom sin. The young man in the gospel had repulsed many sins, but there was one sin which foiled him. That was covetousness. Luke 18, 22 and 23. Christians, mark that sin you are most readily led captive by. 
that is the harlot in your bosom. It is a sad thing that a man should be so bewitched by lust, that if it asks him to part with not only half the kingdom, Esther 7, 2, but the whole kingdom of heaven, he must part with it to gratify that lust. Answer 4. The sin which men use... I'm sorry, the sin which men use arguments to defend is the beloved sin. Sin, The one who has a jewel in his bosom will defend it to his death. So too, when there is any sin in the bosom, men will defend it. The sin we are, we are advocates and dis, disputants for is the favorite sin. If the sin is passion, we plead for it. I do well to be angry, Jonah 4.9. If the sin is covetousness and we vindicate it and perhaps twist scripture to justify it, that is the sin which lies nearest to the heart. Answer 5. That sin which most troubles us and flies most in our face in an hour of sickness and distress, that is the Delilah's sin. When Joseph's brethren were distressed, their sin in selling their brother came to their remembrance. We are truly guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of our brother when he begged us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress has is this distress has come upon us. Genesis forty two twenty one. So too, when a man is on a sickbed, and his conscience says, You have been guilty of such a sin, you went with it and rolled it like honey under your tongue. His conscience is reading him a sad lecture. Surely that was the beloved sin. Answer 6. The sin which a man finds it hardest to let go of is the endeared sin. Of all his sons, Jacob found it hardest to part with Benjamin. So too the sinner says, This and that sin I have parted with, but must Benjamin go? Must I part with this delightful sin? That that pierces my heart. As with a castle that has several forts around it, the first and second fort may be taken. But when it comes to the castle, the governor would rather fight and die than yield that. So a man may allow some of his sins to be demolished. But when it comes to that one sin, it is taking the castle. He will never, never agree to part with that one. Surely that is the master sin. <clears throat> this favorite sin is a God-provoking sin. The wise men of Tro Troy counseled Priam to send Helena back to the Greeks, not permitting himself to be abused any longer by the charms of her beauty, because keeping her within the city would lay the foundation for a fatal war. So we should put away our Delilah's sin, lest it incense the God of heaven, and make him commence a war against us. The favorite sin is above all others the most dangerous. As Samson's strength lay in his hair, so the strength of sin lies in this beloved sin. There is like a, this is like a poison striking the heart, which brings death. A godly man will lay the axe of repentance to this sin and hew it down. He sets this sin, like Uriah, in the forefront of the battle, so that it may be slain. He will sacrifice this Isaac. He will pluck out this right eye, so that he may, he may see better to go to heaven. Number four, what the world considers lesser sins. There is no such thing as little sins, yet some may be deemed less, less comparatively. <clears throat> but a good man will not indulge himself in these, such as one, sins of omission. Some think that it is no great, great matter to omit family or private prayer. They can go several months and God never hear from them. A godly man would as soon live without food as without prayer. He knows that every creature of God is sanctified by prayer. 1 Timothy 4.5 The bird may shame many Christians. It never takes a drop without the eye being lifted up toward heaven. Number two, vain, frothy discourse, much, much less what looks like an oath. 
if God will judge us for our idle words, Matthew 12:36, will he not judge much more for idle oaths? Number three, a godly man dare not allow himself rash censuring. Some think this is a small matter. They will not swear, but they will slander. This is very evil. This is a wounding man in that, <clears throat> sorry, this is wounding a man in that which is dearest to him. The one who is godly turns all his censures upon himself. He judges himself for his own sins, but is very watchful and concerned about the good name of another. Use. Because you would be numbered among the genealogies of the saints, do not indulge yourself in any sin. Consider the mischief which one sin lived in will do. Number one. One sin gives Satan as much advantage against you as more sins. The fowler can hold a bird by one wing. Satan held Judas fast by one sin. Number two. One sin lived in argues that the heart is not sound. The one who hides one rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown. The person who indulges one sin is a traitorous hypocrite. One sin, number three, one sin will make way for more, as a little thief can open the door for more. Sins are linked and chained together. One sin will draw on more. David's adultery made way for murder. One sin never goes alone. If there is only one nest egg, the devil can brood upon it. Number four, one sin is as much a breach of God's law as more sins. Whoever stumbles in one point is guilty of all. James 2.10 If the king makes a law against felony, <clears throat> treason, and murder, and a man is guilty of only one of these, he is as much a transgressor of the law as if he were guilty of all of them. <clears throat> Number five. One sin lived in prevents Christ from entering. One stone in the pipe keeps out the water. One sin indulged in obstructs the soul and keeps the streams of Christ's blood from running into it. Number six, one sin lived in will spoil all your good duties. A drop of poison will spoil a glass of wine. Abimelech, a bastard son, destroyed 70 of his brothers. Judges 9.5 One bastard sin will destroy 70 prayers. One dead fly will spoil the whole box of ointment. Ecclesiastes 10.1 <clears throat> Number seven. One sin lived in will be a canker worm to eat out the peace of conscience. It removes the manna from the ark and leaves only a rod. One sin is a pirate that robs a Christian of his comfort. One jarring string makes all the music out of tune. One sin countenanced will spoil the music of the conscience. Number eight. One sin allowed will damn just as well as more sins. One disease is enough to kill. However strong offense is made, if only one gap is left open, the wild beast may enter and tread down the corn. If there is only one sin, if there is only one sin is allowed in the soul, you open a gap for the devil to enter. It is a smile of uh, I'm sorry. It is a simile of Chrysostom that a soldier who had his headpiece and breastplate on, if he lacks armor in just one place, the bullet may enter there. He may be shot as well as if he had no armor at all. So if you, if you favor only one sin, you leave a part of your soul unarmed, and the bullet of God's wrath may enter there and shoot you. One sin may shut you out of heaven. As Jerome says, what difference is there in being shut out for more sins or for one? Therefore take heed of cherishing even one sin. One millstone will sink a man into the sea as well as a hundred. Number nine, one sin harbored in the soul will make us unfit for suffering. How soon an hour of trial may come. A man who has hurt his shoulder cannot carry a heavy burden. 
and a man who has any guilt in his conscience cannot carry the cross of Christ. Will someone deny his life for Christ if he cannot deny his lust for Christ? One unmortified sin in the soul will bring forth the bitter fruit of apostasy. If then you would show yourself to be godly, give a certificate of divorce to every sin. Kill the Goliath sin. Do not let, a, let sin reign, Romans 6.12. In the original, it is, do not let sin king it over. Grace and sin may be together, but grace and love of sin cannot. Therefore, parley with sin no longer, but with the spear of mortification, spill the heart blood of every sin. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if through the spirit you mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live, Romans 8.13. <clears throat> All right. Well, that is our uh, that is our sec section for today. That is our attribute. A godly man is a man who does not indulge himself in any sin, meaning he doesn't live in it. Uh, we are going to stumble. We we are fallen humans. We are going to stumble, and we are going to stumble into sin. And it, it doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility for it, but we are. We're going to struggle with it um, until glory. Until glory. But we, we must hate it, as Thomas Watson indicated. We must hate it. I mean, even Paul indicated in his epistles. We must hate that sin, all of it, particularly the secret ones. And th those, those, for me, are some of the hardest. Those secret sins, those are the ones most on Sunday morning when we do our prayer of mortification, when we come before God to mortify our sins. Those are the ones that, Lord, please help me to bring all of them and lay them at the foot of the cross and mortify them and turn from them and walk from them. That's what we have to be striving to do. That is what the godly person, the godly man, that's what our picture must be. That is one of the attributes. All right. Well, thank you for spending this time with me. I hope this time in Thomas Watson's The Godly Man's Picture is edifying for you. Let's go ahead and wrap up with the seventh day evening prayer. It's called Future Blessings. Let's pray. There is no blessing we implore, but thou art able to give, hast promised to give, hast given already to countless multitudes, all unworthy and guilty like ourselves. Make us willing to receive the supply of our need from thy bounty. To this end, convince us of sin. Soften our hard hearts to bewail our folly, ingratitude, pride, unbelief, rebellion, corruption. Through the law may we die to the law. Then look with wonder, submission, delight to the provision thou hast made for the glory of thy name in the salvation of sinners. Give us a hope that makes us not ashamed, a love that excites to holy obedience, a joy in thee that is our strength, a faith in thy Son who loved us and died for us. May we persevere in duty when not fully conscious of thee, wait upon thee and keep thy way. Be humble and earnest suppliance at thy feet. Live continually as on the brink of eternity. Let us be at thy disposal for the duties and events of life. Submit our preferences to thy wisdom and will. Resign our enjoyments if thou shouldst require it, as our absolute proprietor and best friend. In our unworthiness and provocations, make us grateful for the means of grace and the ordinances of religion, and teach us to profit by them more than we have done. Help us to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day, to enter upon the Sabbath mindful of it, mindful of its solemnities, duties, privileges, setting all things worldly aside while we worship thee. May we know the blessedness of men whose strength is in thee, and in whose hearts are the highways to heaven. Amen. All right. Well, again, thank you for spending this time with me. Um, I'm very grateful that you have. 
I hope you have a wonderful evening and I hope to see you in the morning and I hope you've got planned either this evening or tomorrow morning to spend time worshiping with the saints. Have a great night. God bless. Thank you.